Welcome back, Lionheart Radio, Community Radio for the Annie Carey. It's a Saturday morning. It's the movie hour. It's Daniel Mumby. Good morning, Richard. How are you? Fine. Better? Yeah, more or less. That was a very emphatic introduction. Yes. Thank you very much. Indeed. Great to be with you again. Um, where where should we start? Should we start with the local films? I think we should. Yes, just the one to tell you about at Annick Playhouse, which is on next Friday at 7.30, Saturday at 1 o'clock and 7.30, so it's going to be a big film. Mm -hmm. It is Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy. Which, if you haven't seen it already, is, well, I think the second best film of the year behind We Need to Talk About Kevin. I think Thomas Alfredson really has fulfilled on the promise of Let the Right One In. If you have strong feelings about the TV series, you might feel they've skimped on a couple of places, but if you don't, it's an extraordinary atmospheric spy thriller, and uh, Gary Oldman is terrific. Well worth going to see. Okay, at the Maltings in Berwick, a few to tell you about. First of all, tomorrow morning at 10am, uh, good children's film, this one, Aristocats. I think it is the, the Disney film, which... I assume it is. Yes, yes. which is really good. I, don't, I mean, I don't think it's up with The Lion King, which is what we started the show with, but uh, it's very funny, and, uh, yeah, young children will love it, basically. Particularly uh, the scenes with Edgar the Butler, who is a very creepy character. Tickets for that are £2.50 if you book them in advance, £3 on the day, and if you're two or under, I think we might struggle on that one, Daniel, we'll get in free. Mm. <laughs> right. So, do you remember the old... Um, Pete and Dud sketch where they go into the uh, the zoo and uh, Pete and Dud takes off his cap and puts his thumb in his mouth and then Pete goes to the ticket office and says, uh, one and a half, please. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we might get away with that, but yes. not two years old. Yes, indeed. Um, also tomorrow at 2.30 and 7.30, The Adventures of Tintin, Secret of the Unicorn. Which we'll come well, to because it's yeah, in the top, top ten. Top ten, yeah. Monday evening at 8 o'clock, it is Warrior. Which is pretty good fun. I mean, it, it is essentially a regurgitation of all the cliches of the Rocky films, but no. Tom Hardy looks good with his shirt off, and when they do actually get into the ring and start beating the living daylights out of each other, it's a good, trashy spectacle. 8pm that starts. It's half price Monday, so tickets are £2.50 for that. And then Wednesday, it's Berwick Film Society's uh, production of Loose Cannons. Actually, not their production of, their showing of. Yes. Let's get it right. Yeah, I think Loose Cannons is a bit all over the place. I mean, it's it's two brothers who uh, you know, want variously or you know, to go into the pastor industry or not to go into the pastor industry, and they have sort of uh, a dodgy relationship with their father. It's good fun, but don't expect a masterpiece. And then on Thursday evening, The Help. Which, I think it's gone out of the top ten so we can talk about it. I mean, I, when we reviewed this, I think Tamsin Robson of this parish said that she enjoyed it but felt ashamed to be white afterwards. And it is, it is manipulative. And the more I think about it, the more I wish that it could have you know, dealt with its racial politics in a less sort of mawkish way. But I think it's, if, it's, if you're going in for entertainment, then it's just about all right. But it could go either way. From there to the top ten, then. Okay. Uh, number ten is Moneyball. Which I'm surprised it hasn't taken more money. I mean, it might be because of the uh, the position of baseball in the UK as not being a mainstream sport, but I like Brad Pitt's performance. There's been a few reviews that have compared him to Robert Redford, and they actually do have a very similar haircut in this. Um, and just as The Social Network, which is Aaron Sorkin's previous work, just as that wasn't really a film about Facebook, so this isn't really about baseball, it's about statistics and sort of an underdog story, it's not quite up there with David Fincher's film, but it is very interesting and I think it's got a good deal of substance. Number nine, Desi Boys. Which is a Bollywood film, um, I wasn't press screened, but the, uh, the story follows two friends who lose their jobs during the recession and choose to become male escorts. I mean, quite familiar territory, but uh, it's done well at the Indian box office, so it must be all right. Number eight is In Time. 
Good premise, poor execution. I like Andrew Nichol, who directed Gattaca, and there are nice little visual touches, most of which hark back to Logan's run, but, no, after about half an hour, it runs out of steam. Number seven, just about the lowest score I've seen this year on uh, Rotten Tomatoes, Dreamhouse. Yeah, it's a 7% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is rarely a good thing. I mean, Jim Sheridan, who directed it, tried to get his name taken off it. I mean, they used, to, we were saying last week, there used to be a rule in Hollywood called the Alan Smithy rule, which is that if you really wanted to distance yourself from a film, you could put the name Alan Smithy yes, on Yes, I remember them. that. Yeah. Yes. And in fact, one of the one of the longer cuts of David of Dune has David Lynch's ch name changed to Alan Smithy. I can't remember which version it is, but uh, so it's not hard to see why he did that. It is all over the place. It doesn't even hang together in that sort of right B movie way that Shutter Island hung together. And we'll come on to Martin Scorsese's new film later in the program. The twist is poorly handled, and the actors do look either lost or embarrassed to be in it. Number six, loved by critics and fans alike, 50-50, yeah, Angelica just, Houston. Yeah, it is a surprisingly intelligent, well-handled comedy. I mean, it's a film about cancer which doesn't fall into the trap of Hollywood illness of let's have glamorous people, glamorous, glamorous, and then suddenly they're dead. Um, I think it does deal its female characters a bit of a duff hand because it is essentially a sort of Apatow-esque bromance, so I'm a bit unsure about it. But it is pretty funny and it does pass the time nicely while they're getting you to think a bit. On to Mickey Rourke and others is Immortals, well, not one of their greatest films. No, I mean, Mickey Rourke has done a lot worse stuff in the past. I mean, you remember back in the 90s when he did things like Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Men or the straight-to-video sequel of Nine and a Half Weeks, which, you know, just beggar's belief. It, the problem with Immortals is that it can't decide whether it wants to be the sort of the Ray Harryhausen 12 certificate fluff or the full-on 18 certificate blood and guts and in the end it falls between two stores and the story is badly told. As we said, the Maltings in Berwick next weekend, the adventures of Tintin. Um, no, I think the story is a bit stodgy. They haven't done a brilliant job of mashing together the three books because it's Secret of the Unicorn, Red Rackham's Treasure and Crab with the Golden Claws. I'm also disappointed on a personal level that there's no Professor Calculus because he was one of the best things about those stories um but the, the motion capture is the best i've seen you don't get that sort of eerie dead-eyed look that you got with robert zemeckis recent efforts in the genre the set pieces are very good it's not spielberg's best but it does suggest that no it's good fun and it does suggest that the sequel helmed by peter jackson could be pretty good and it's got jamie bell which yes. can't be bad no it is and uh, yeah he does a very good job right my week with marilyn which is fluff and pretty good fluff at that. I mean, it is essentially a costume drama full of famous people for playing famous people. I like Eddie Redmayne very much. I mean, he was famously in Savage Grace, which we talked about a while back. Kenneth Branagh's clearly enjoying himself as a lip-curling Lawrence As Olivier. he would. Yeah, exactly. I mean, no. Considering he was described so often as the new Olivier when he was starting out with Hamlet and so forth, it's, it's only fair that he should, uh, when he finally gets the opportunity to play Olivier, that he should do it complete justice. I think Michelle Williams is okay as Marilyn. The film is at its best when it's being lightheaded, which it is for most of the time. So, good fun, but don't and think too much. Dame Jane Judy. <laughs> Dame Judy. Yes, she does a good job playing Dame Judy. I do very well at my alliterations. <laughs> uh, talking about famous people, Arthur Christmas is at number two. Which isn't first-rate Ardman by any means, but it's you know, clearly striking a chord with its target audience. Now that we're into December itself, I can't complain about it being out too early because it is officially getting into Christmas. Shall we I? do a Christmas song? I think we should. Yeah. Yes. No, like I say, I'm, in, I'm getting into the spirit of it now. I think it's fine, just don't go in expecting Curse of the Were-Rabbit. Yeah, I should say, you've come in your white beard today, haven't you? <laughs> I have got a little bit of stubble, and I'm going grey. <laughs> <laughs> and at number one, 
Uh, Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 1. Now, I've got absolutely no time for the sniffy male critics who have been deriding this for no reason. I think it is flawed. I mean, no, from a sort of horror fan perspective, I wanted more of the sort of the body horror David Cronenberg stuff because the, 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 the whole thing about the human and vampire getting themselves pregnant does hark back to things like The Brood or David Cronenberg's remake of The Fly. But I'm glad to see that it's taking money. Whether or not you like the Twilight series, you have to admire the fact that you have a, a franchise about a central female protagonist that is actually hitting its target audience and taking money. It doesn't matter. No. You cannot like the Twilight Saga, no, as individually executed films, yeah. that's perfectly fine. But to turn around and say, oh, it's rubbish just because it's directed to teenage girls is ludicrous. Indeed. So, recommendations this week, then? Um, a conditional recommendation for Twilight, simply because I think if you haven't seen the others, you, you're not going to have to rush out to see it. Um, out of the others, Moneyball, 50-50, and uh, either Tintin or My Mook with Marilyn. So, quite a few to choose from. There is quite, it's a pretty good bunch, because we had a lot of very good releases last week, Indeed. and some of them have filtered through. Yes. So, I realise we forgot to give out the box office numbers for the local of course. films. So, Annick Playhouse is 01665. 510785 and the Maltings in Berwick 01289 330999. Do you think we're back on their Christmas list now after no last week? Hopefully. Yes. Hopefully. I'm up there tonight. So <laughs> <laughs> you find out. I will find Send out. Send me an email. Yes, we're uh, going to see some theatre, uh, how, see how they run the original theatre company with Philip King's very British farce. Okay. That should be good fun indeed. Uh, well, before we move on, we'll say a little bit about Ken Russell, really, shouldn't we? Yeah, I mean, if it, it kind of escaped many people's attention that the great Ken Russell died um, earlier this week at the age of 84. A very um, misunderstood director in many ways. A lot of younger people may not know him except for his uh, ill-fated appearance on Celebrity Big Brother four years ago. Um, he was basically, there was a wonderful quote about him by Mark Kermode, who a critic I very much admire, which is that he... Uh, basically came along when British cinema was defined by sort of realistic gritty kitchen sink and said, actually, no, we can be as flamboyant as Federica Fellini. And if, yeah. you, if you look at his back catalogue of films, you know, the, the, the Devils, Tommy, Women in Love, Altered States, um, Fall of the Laos of Usher, some of his later works, Regardless of whether or not all those individual films hold together, the thing that unites Ken Russell's work is just this unbounding emphatic passion for cinema as an art form and the desire to sort of blend high art and popular culture together. I mean, lots of people kind of wrote about Ken Russell's films as being, oh, it's excessively violent or excessively interested in sex and religion, but in fact they were nothing of the sort. They were, they were extraordinary attempts to to create a transcendent experience in the way it's very hard to describe it if you haven't seen a Ken Russell film. My advice is that if you want to get into his work, either go and see Women in Love because it's the D definitive D.H. Yeah. Lawrence Great adaptation yeah. you know, with the famous you know, sequence of Alan Bates and Oliver Reed rustling naked yes. for the affection of <laughs> Labour MP Glenda Jackson. <laughs> or, Things have changed. Yes, exactly. <laughs> or alternatively, if you, if you are wanting something a little bit more musical, either go and see Tommy, the adaptation of the Who's Rock Opera, or Liz Domania starring Ringo Starr as the Pope. I mean, he was bonkers, let's face it. Ken Russell was known yes. for making films that were completely off the wall and turned up to 17. But if you got in the zone with them, they did have substance, and The Devils, it's an injustice that it hasn't yet been released. And Tommy was a great classic as well. Yeah, yes. I mean, when, I, when we talked about Quadrophenia, I was a bit down on it, but I no, have since sort of changed my mind, and I think for all its visual excesses, it does have real punch to it. So, saddle offs to the British film world this week. Yeah. Right, cult classic, after this. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live, Live from, from Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. 
I'm not even going to attempt to read the cast list on our uh, cult classic this week. <laughs> well, if it's any consolation, neither am I. Right. Um, because we are talking about Godzilla, or Gojira, as we should probably be calling it, 1954 Japanese monster movie directed by uh, Ishiro Honda, who spent the next 20 or 30 years of his life making Godzilla films, the best known of which outside of Japan is probably King Kong vs. Godzilla from the early 60s. Um, it basically created one of the great monsters of cinema and known in Japan as a, a daikaiju. hope I'm pronouncing that right and I apologise in advance if there's any Japanese listeners who want to correct me. And no, it's very much seen as a Japanese companion to King Kong and if you read into the sort of the Godzilla franchise or the Godzilla series as it later became with, you know, like I say, Shiro Honda working and basically churning them out on a production yeah. line. It's an interesting comparison between that and the, the sort of American studio system of making monster movies that was pioneered under people like Val Uten in the 30s and 40s that influenced people like Robert Wise. Um, it had a budget of $1 million and on original release it only received limited attention outside of Japan. I think it was, it got a limited theatrical release across um, Western Europe and was and did very well but when it came to, the, to uh, America it was substantially recut into a version called Godzilla King of the Monsters and we'll come on to that in more yeah. detail in a second because it's an interesting you know, indication of Americans treatment or at least past treatment of foreign language films. It also won a Japanese Academy Award for its special effects, and I think it was nominated for Best Picture, but might have lost out to Seven Samurai, but that might have come a few years later. So, yeah. if you, okay, was that true? Okay, so the plot is, it's set in Japan, as you might expect, uh, in present day, uh, where the country is recovering from the aftermath of World War II. At the beginning of the film, a fishing boat is sunk off the coast of Japan by some bizarre underwater explosion, just as a flash of light, and then the boat disappears. Uh, another ship is sent out to look for it, but then that suffers the same fate. No, it it cuts to uh, yeah. the radar room and suddenly the signal goes and all the families are crowded around Ooh. thinking what's going to happen. It then cuts to the residents of Odo Island where there's a big fishing community and uh, the mainland uh, scientists and politicians come over and have a chat to the locals who saw the explosions yeah. and they say that it's this strange ancient beast called Gojira, which we would uh, translate as Godzilla, which is this giant lizard whom they fear has been awakened from its subterranean ancient Ooh, slumber yeah. and sure enough it has and it's now wreaking havoc a wake of devastation as the scientists and the politicians are struggling to find out how do we beat this thing. While all of that's going on, there is a relationship between a young man and a woman um, who was upset to be married. She was previously engaged to uh, a scientist who served in the Second World War and has now become a recluse. He's got an eye patch over yeah. one eye. But that scientist, although he doesn't want to have anything to do with the monster, maybe has the thing that they need to defeat it. Uh -huh. So not a bad setup. It's for, not. Not no. for, for a 50s film at any yes. rate. Um, there is a history of critics being very down on action movies as a general film. I mean, they're, they're sort of blamed by social commentators for saying, no, oh, they're anti-intellectual, they, you know, they dullify uh, people, no, young people, they're stupid and awful. And while you can certainly point to a number of action films that are stupid and hollow, most of the back catalogue of Michael Bay, for instance, <laughs> no, fair enough, there are, no, when done correctly, action films are capable of being just as intelligent or insightful as yeah. their more artistic counterpoints. I mean, when we talked about um, Spetters a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago now, yeah. we sort of mentioned that, no, Paul Verhoeven's films do have that thing of on the surface they look like they're completely sleazy tripey nonsense but actually when you actually get yeah. in the zone and dig underneath them there's actually a lot of substance in them yeah. and it's much the same with Godzilla I mean it's not exactly the same because there isn't sort of flesh ripping 18 certificate <laughs> violence in this film because yes. it's yeah. from 1954 and it's a PG yeah. so you're not going to get Verhoeven but you are going to get no 
substance within the confines of you know, an action movie sensibility rather than people sitting around the rooms talking about the politics yes. of nuclear war, which is fine, but it can be a bit dull. Um, the film has an undeniable cultural influence. I mean, quite apart from the fact, you know, the, the sheer quantity of films that it produced. Like I said, you had the legions of sequels, you had the crossover films with sort of King Kong and various yeah. other Japanese monsters, and of course you had the god-awful American remake from the late 90s with Matthew Broderick, which was directed by um, Roland Emmerich and made Independence Day. That was the one which was advertised as, um, you know, they'd have big, um, like, billboards saying his foot is as big as this sign, and people sort of went to see it thinking, oh, it's going to be really good, and then it was absolutely awful. Apparently Apparently there's a new version on the way as well, which I'm not looking forward to. Certainly, it is one of the big linchpins in Western perceptions of Japanese culture. Yeah. You kind of, you know, you name, you ask people to name something cultural Japanese, and they'll either say Godzilla or Hayao Miyazaki. Then that's, right. you know, no, in the case of that, it's pretty fair enough. I mean, yeah. that's not all that Japanese culture is by any stretch of the imagination, but they're, they're, they're two good touch points. And also, you can see its influence on cinema. I mean, it is a big influence on things like Cloverfield, the Matt Reeves film, or Bon Joon Ho's movie, The Host which was about this strange beast lurking in the sewers underneath a Chinese city. But there's also you know, the, the imagery of Godzilla, you know, the sort of the monster rising out of the sea and you know, crashing into the power lines and breathing fire. That's influenced everything from Matt Groening, who's the creator of The Simpsons, to Steven Spielberg, uh, who famously dubbed the death scream of Godzilla onto the end of Duel, where the truck goes over the cliff and yeah. there's this huge kind of crunch of metal, and that's Godzilla's death throes. Um, for better or worse... Godzilla, or Godzilla, as I should be calling it, either created or cemented many of the conventions of the modern action or monster movie. I mean, the groundwork, to a certain extent, had been laid by things like the original version of King Kong, or I suppose the creature from the Black Lagoon, from yeah. slightly earlier in the 50s. But the conventions founded in Godzilla are now so endemic that I think they deserve recognition. So, for instance, you have the central romance between two people who are absolutely destined to be together, set against the backdrop of their home being destroyed, or in the case with something like Jurassic Park, where it's, you know, that sort of thing, but instead of their home being destroyed, it's people they care about being put in danger, because it's yeah. the two young children whom Dr. Grant originally doesn't want anything to do with, and then comes to become a sort of surrogate father figure. Yeah. Would you have seen Jurassic Park first time round? Uh, yes, I think I did, yes. Yeah, okay. yeah, I must have done, yes. Yeah, it was really good, wasn't it? Yeah, it was yeah, good. I mean, yeah. some of the special effects don't quite hold up today, yeah. but it's still very good fun. Um, so you have that convention. You also have the idea of, you know, most of the characters want to destroy the monster, but there's one sort of shifty character who wants to keep it alive and study it and see what they can learn, which I suppose is a variation of, you know, the, uh, the filmmaker character in King Kong who wants to keep mm. the gorilla alive so they can make money yeah. out of it. Um, and if you've seen Peter Jackson's remake of King Kong, which is arguably better than the original, no, that has sort of Jack Black with King Kong chained yeah. in the... No, don't worry, he won't escape. That's made of chromatized steel. <clears throat> sort of said in that tenacious D sort of way. So you have those things. You also have um, the distant or geeky scientist who in the, in the 90s version is played by Matthew Broderick who doesn't want to help but ends up possessing the only thing that can stop the monster. And in this case, it's, a, it's an oxygen destroyer. In the 1998 version, it's fish. So, <laughs> yeah, that shows yes. how things change. Like many classic foreign language films, Gojira had a very rough time with the American distributors. I bet. Yes, these were neurotic as well. They would never have coped with the nuclear, anything about nuclear war. Exactly. I mean, 
the, the disrespect that Terry, I mean, it's one thing to sort of take out little bits and pieces of a film to say, well, maybe that yeah. won't translate for cultural reasons. Yeah. In the same way that when you have a very parochial British film about sort of tea and scones and sort of in-jokes, that you think, well, maybe we can sort of change it so it can sell better. But in this case, it's just pure contempt. I mean, even with all the reams of new footage of, you know, Raymond Burr's character going around yeah. saying, I'm standing here in uh, Tokyo and this happened the other day and have a look at this devastation. The American version is ten minutes shorter than the original. Mm. So you just think... No, if you're going to show that little respect, don't show it in the first place. Um, ironically, one of the big problems with Godzilla is something which is actually more characteristic of American action movies, particularly more recent offerings and sort of the, the explosion of yeah. CGI and the fact that visual effects nowadays are much cheaper than they would have been yeah. in the sort of the glory days of something like Silent Running, which I was actually watching again this week and sort of found myself really charmed by it. Um, like many sort of CG-heavy action films, Godzilla does end up being dominated by the special effects. And some of the set pieces are pretty incredible now. There's a central 10-minute sequence of um, the monster walking through these huge uh, power lines that they've set yeah. up around the outskirts of Tokyo, breathing fire and sort of you can see, not people getting burned because it's a PG certificate, but people running from flame and buildings being scorched and just, yeah. you know, complete devastation. A lot of it's done with model shots. A lot of it, you know, of Godzilla's movements is a man in a beanbag, effectively. <laughs> but no, shot yes. reasonably successfully. Um, but like the American remake, the extent to which those sorts of set pieces are emphasised, basically the more emphasis you put on effects in a movie, the more you leave yourself open to people sort of asking questions about how that works. And in this yeah. case, the central question is, okay, it's a fire-breathing lizard, so why does it live underwater? <laughs> yeah, and there's yeah. no sort of immediately easy answer for that. I don't think it matters too much in the long run, but no, the more, the more stuff you had of Gojira rather than the people trying to run from him, yeah. the more you sort of find yourself asking those awkward questions and they do sort of expose a couple of plot holes. The dominance of effects is sort of solidified by the very melodramatic plot of Godzilla, which is not entirely surprising. I mean, the 50s were the golden age of melodrama in Hollywood. It's wrong to attack one of the definitive monster movies for falling into the cliches of monster movies, just as it's wrong to take something like uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and say, well, that was a rubbish film because it has a twist ending. Yeah. It's like, it was the film that invented the twist ending. You can't <laughs> criticise it for that. Because, of course, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is the first film which has the twist of it was all taking place in the guy's head, mm -hmm. which has been subsequently replicated pretty much everywhere. But you can pretty much see all the plot points of Gojira coming a mile off, and the characters are very clearly drawn, at least from a visual point of view, so you don't have to second guess. I mean, you take one look at the guy with sort of the scruffy hair and the eye patch, and you think, hmm, he's up to no good. I really don't <laughs> want to trust him. <laughs> There is some dispute in critical circles over how good or original the special effects are, because like I say, they are pretty, um, they are pretty spectacular. Roger Ebert, when he was reviewing the film, I think it, when it got re-released in 2004 for its 50th anniversary, he described it as a bad film but with undeniable urgency and argued that the effects in King Kong were much more state-of-the-art because, you know, it didn't, because yeah. that was very much stop-motion in uh, King Kong and sort yeah. of with scale models. This argument has never been properly settled, and even if you look at King Kong versus Godzilla, there's not much to choose between them. I think in the end, the only way to judge the validity of the effects is whether or not they succeed in giving the monster character, and this is something that we'll come on to when we look at the remake or prequel of The Thing in the new releases. It's not simply a case of, you know, looking at you know, Godzilla and thinking, is it a monster or is it a man in a beanbag? You have to actually think, do I care about this um, do I care about this character? Is this thing on screen, this physical entity, inducing an emotional response? And the short answer to this is yes, because we do genuinely believe that even though 
it sort of squeaks and creaks around the set a bit and it you no know, the fire cannon does look a bit unrealistic it does feel like there's something intelligent and plausible with a personality underneath all those yeah. special effects and we aren't we aren't necessarily in floods of tears when he dies and no he sort of rears up out of the sea yeah. and screams and then falls underneath never to rise again or will he that's where the sequel <laughs> comes in but there is some sense of feeling that no when Gojira dies that something physical and tangible has yeah. departed yeah. rather than just there the was some CGI. rather yeah. than just there was some pixels there then there was some fish and then both of them are gone yeah. fine let's move on don't care it does differ from and perhaps improves on King Kong because of its political subtext. I mean, you can argue that King Kong wasn't designed to be a political film in the first place, but if you look at Peter Jackson's version, which has Heart of Darkness rest and sort of listening yeah. in the back of it a lot, and I, I do think Jackson's version is actually the better of the two, although you know, King Kong in the original version is probably more historically significant, you do have this massive political subtext, which is the film is about... It's an allegory for Japan's reaction to the events of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the, the nuclear tests on Bikini Atoll. There's all the sort of the, the US dominance of the Pacific and sort of, you know, dropping these huge nuclear bombs yeah. all over the place. And a lot of them were affecting Japanese life, either literally, and yes. people were getting yeah. ill, or psychologically, because the US was saying, not only have you won the war, but we're going to put the screws on you now and you just have to go along with it. This was something that was not widely reported in the American press at the time, you know, so the idea of nuclear tests just off the coast of Japan, which, you know, coupled with the political pressure, which you were saying, yeah. might explain why the film was butchered so heavily the first time round. But it's not as though, when I say it raises allegorically, it doesn't mean like, you know, here's a bit of action, but maybe a bit of subtext underneath. The, the parallels are actually quite marked, and in many cases they're quite brave, considering that this was just nine years after the end of the Second yeah, World War, indeed. when yeah. it would have been quite touchy to reapproach those sort of issues, particularly with you know, the differences in Japanese culture, which is much more sort of emphasis on dignity and yeah. reserve and Quite tradition. Quite nurse at the time. Yeah. Exactly. And so, I mean, for instance, the underwater explosions, which are reported when the first ships sink, they're an echo of the after-effects of Bikini Atoll, where you yeah. had the Americans exploding a device. They, they said, they sort of gave the governments in the area advance warning saying we're going to drop a bomb of such and such a size and then they set out a safety zone beyond which the radiation yeah. wouldn't get but then they changed their minds at the last minute and dropped a bomb that was two and a half times larger so that people who were within the safety zone actually yeah. got massively infected with radiation poisoning you know, and the US government I don't think has ever apologized for those sorts of yeah. things so you have that sort of thing of you know seemingly innocent people in the fishing boat getting caught up in this horrible yeah. monstrosity over which they've got no control and the harrowing shots of you know, the aftermath of Gojira's destruction of Tokyo, I mean, it's all shot in black and white, but you could easily have put them in the world at war and you yeah. wouldn't have been able to distinguish because it is sort of, you know, charred mess and people lying yeah. on the ground and sort of weeping and wailing in hospitals. And considering that it was, Japan was still very much recovering from yeah. the long-term effects of the war, it's quite brave to put those things in, particularly in a monster movie, which was traditionally associated yeah. with just sort of screaming heroines running from, like I say, people in beanbags. Yes. So you have to, you have to give it some credit for not, for not only having it in in full, but actually having the guts yeah. to put it in. There is also a direct parallel um, between um, real life and one of the fictional characters. Um, the, the scientist I talked about, this is where the pronunciation comes in, who's called Dr. Daisaku Serizawa, played by uh, Akihiko Hirata, hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, is basically a reflection of Robert Oppenheimer, whom, if you don't follow this sort of thing, was one of the chief architects of the Manhattan Project that basically built the first bombs that were detonated. And when we're taken into his lab, there is a sly nod to um, the Manhattan Project, because... Um, 
he shows the young lady his oxygen destroyer that he's been trying out, and she says, where did you get it? He said, it's something I developed with my German friends, ah, which is, of course, a sly nod yes. to the fact that German yeah. scientists were sort of brought over yeah. to America, they defected, and they helped yeah. to build the bombs. And when Serizawa refuses to use the device, it, he, first of all, he refused to use the device because he's very reluctant about the impact that it'll cause yeah. when the technology gets out in the open, which is very much what Oppenheimer's reaction was after the Trinity test in the yeah. middle of the desert, thinking, Blimey, it's going to do that much? I don't think I want to do this. Yeah. And in the same way as, you know, when Oppenheimer, after the bombs had gone off and Oppenheimer made the famous quote, I am the destroyer of worlds, the bringer of death, and he basically never recovered from those. I mean, he was, no, he was involved with the project from then on for about 10 years, but he, basically his life was shattered by it. In the same way, you have the scientist going down with his invention so that it's never going to be used again. So there's a very interesting parallel there. Like King Kong before it, the monster is there to, to physicalize a deep-rooted or pertinent fear within humanity. It exposes fears around sort of nuclear war, obviously, yeah. but there is a more general fear about a weapon that is seemingly unbeatable, which you can sort of hark back to things like the work of Jules Verne or particularly H.P. Lovecraft when you have these, uh, the, the great monster Cthulhu hiding beyond the mountains yeah. in the Antarctic, just, you know, the strange, intangible force that is ready to just pounce and yeah. shroud the whole world into darkness. If you've read H.P. Lovecraft, it's very scary. So you have the monster as simultaneously a symbol of nuclear war itself, the unforeseen consequences or fallout in both the literal and the metaphorical sense, and that sort of dark, self-preserving aggression at the heart of every human being and which sort of in a way you can link to Lord of the Flies and the yeah. Peter Brook version of Lord of the Flies which came out nine years later and is a very good companion piece to this. It does have, so you know, it's rare to get a monster movie which is that sort of intelligent in terms of its subtext. You do have a couple of dramatic shortcomings because it is constructed like a melodrama complete with sort of screaming heroines and all the men are quite muscly and, you know, yeah. clean shaven. Um, there isn't much tension in the scenes between the actual attacks because you sort of, it's sort of soap operatic yeah. dialogue and lots of people screaming and so forth. Whereas the War of the Worlds, the, 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 uh, the Byron Kennedy film, not Byron Kennedy, um, the, the American film, had um, moments of real threat where it felt like the aliens would win. Godzilla has sort of a feeling of certainty of, yes, it's very bad, but eventually they're going to come up with something yeah. to get it. And the character development is a bit in short supply. But as a whole, to sum up, considering the budget and considering the development of special effects, it does hold up surprisingly well. If nothing else, I think it's better than The War of the Worlds because it actually follows through with the goods and you no, know, it has a better ending because if you remember the ending of War of the Worlds or the ending of the book The War of the Worlds is a classic sort of deus ex machina of oh bacteria killed the aliens whereas yeah. in the War of the Worlds film version it's bacteria killed the aliens but actually God might have been involved as well <laughs> and I just go right um no not on this occasion um its dramatic shortcomings are more or less made up for by the emotional impact of the film. The monster itself is pretty convincing. So it's flawed and ropey in places, and it can't hold a candle to either version of King Kong. But if you have any interest in monster movies or 50 cinema, it is absolutely essential viewing. And it sounds for 50 cinema quite a sophisticated film. Yeah, it is. Yes. I mean, like I say, compared to War of the Worlds, where the special effects were more or less on a par, yeah. it does hold its nerve a lot more. Okay, right. Well, thanks very much to Jordan for your email. You've asked for some Beyoncé. We haven't got the one you wanted, but I hope you like this instead. The heart of the district. This is Lionheart Radio. There's a nice song. Beyoncé, If I Were a Boy. Thanks very much to Jordan for requesting that this morning. Thank you, Jordan. Right, next week's cult film is going to be Event Horizon. Yes, the only good film Paul W.S. Anderson has ever made. A very interesting sci-fi horror starring Sam Neill and Lawrence Fishburne. Sounds fun. Yes. Now here's a novelty of 3D film the critics like. 
Well, it's not that much of a novelty. We're talking about... Uh, They're not normally lights. Well, it, it, it tends to divide. But in, in this case, yeah, so... It's, it's Martin Scorsese's new film. It's called Hugo. It is the new film for Martin Scorsese, who needs no introduction. I mean, what's your favourite Scorsese film? Oh, give me time to think about it. Okay, that. come back to me. Yes. I mean, the general consensus is you're either Taxi Driver or Raging Bull. I'm sort of in between. Yeah. Um... It's based on the graphic novel The Invention of Hugo Cabaret by Brian Selznick, which came out four years ago. It's billed as Scorsese's first family film, his first venture into 3D. It's a use certificate, and he has actually given several interviews saying that in future all of his films are going to be in 3D. I'm sceptical about that because, you know, you know give him sort of two or three yeah. and then see how he does, depending on how 3D does as a whole. So the story is, it's set in a Paris railway station in the early 30s. You have a young kid called Hugo Cabaret, who's played by a British actor called Asa Butterfield, who lives with his father who is a master clock maker and a fan of uh, the filmmaker Georges Méliès who uh, made uh, Voyage to the Moon which is the film with uh, the moon as a face and then the rocket going yeah. into one of its eyes and sort of looking disgruntled uh, from the early 1900s. After his father dies he is forced to scavenge around for food uh, while maintaining the clocks at the station and avoiding uh, a policeman played by Sacha Baron Cohen. Uh, meanwhile he's working on his father's last project which is an automaton, a mechanical man who sort of uh, moves with a pen. He is missing one part of the in which is a heart-shaped key. He meets a girl played by Chloe Moretz who may have this key, Aww. and uh, from then it, it goes into an exploration of essentially the mechanics of early cinema and sort of the childlike wonder, which is in many ways self-reflective because of Scorsese's you know, insane love for cinema. I mean, not insane in the sense that it's wrong, but insane in just it, the extent. It's, the general consensus is very is that it's really really good. It's already won the National Board of Review's Best Picture. It's being tipped for Oscars. I think it's pretty good, but perhaps not that good. Um, the three D is arguably the best ever, and James Cameron has actually come out in interviews and saying, "If I had this technology two years ago, think what I could have done with Avatar." Um, I still don't think it's entirely necessary to the story, but if you have to see one three D film, then maybe this is it. Um, it's a film about the love of cinema and sort of people discovering the mechanics of cinema in which in, you, know, you sort of go back through the various ones. You have Eight and a Half, the Federica Fellini film, which is very good. A cinema Paradiso from the 80s, which is a sort of a young boy you know, learning how to work a yeah. projector in a village. You've seen Cinema Paradiso? No. No, it's, it's okay. It's, it's a bit sort of frothy in places. Yeah. And then famously, of course, you have from the early 60s Peeping Tom, the Michael Powell film, which got completely savaged by the critics first time round, but is now regarded by a masterpiece. I went to see it in a midnight screening at the Tyneside and was just bowled over by how brilliant it was. And of course, Scorsese had an influence in making that film rehabilitated because he was called yeah. on to remake it. And then when they showed it in the theatre, the guy turned around to him and said, you can't do better than that and he spent the next sort of 20 or 30 years talking it up so i think because of its because it is profoundly about the love of cinema i think it might appeal to sort of older children and adults a little bit more than sort of seven eight nine year olds but they'll enjoy it for the spectacle and i do think that scorsese is starting to find his feet again as the director because uh, no after he won the oscar for the departed you kind of got the sense of, okay, now what? Because you finally achieved yeah. the thing you've wanted to do. And then he, you know, he did Shutter Island, which was quite good fun. But in the middle of that, he did sort of things like Shine a Light, which was that very sanitized documentary about the Rolling Stones. And you just felt, well, Marty, okay, you're at a stage where you can dabble, but I'd like you to be serious for a bit. This is a return to form, and it's really good. And I've just been having a look at his list of films. I'll go with The Taxi Driver's best. Yeah, I think King of Comedy is better than Taxi Driver, but Taxi Driver is very, very right. good. 
Well, it must be, well, at least a couple of weeks since we've had a Matt Damon film on release. Uh, Margaret. Now, this is interesting. Um, it's the new, long-awaited film from Kenneth Lonergan. Uh, he came to critical attention 11 years ago when he made uh, You Can Count On Me, starring uh, Laura Linney, whom you may know from The Truman Show. Very yes. good actress. Yeah. Um, this uh, takes its title from a poem called Je by uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins. Uh, stars Anna Paquin, who is best known for playing Rogue in the X-Men series. She plays a teenager called Lisa Cohen, who one day catches the eye of a bus driver, played by Mark Ruffalo, and this causes an accident in which a mother and a baby are killed. She lies to the police about what happened to protect her friend, and the film explores what will happen to her and the various moral dilemmas that she faces. It's had a very tortuous production history. Um, it was filmed in 2005, and since then, Lonergan has been struggling to complete a cut which he was satisfied with, and it was caught up in all sorts of legal lawsuits because, you know, him missing deadlines and Fox saying, no, we will not release this until you, you know, cut it to our specification. Yeah. Lonergan saying, no, this is my work, I want to get everything absolutely right. Scorsese was actually brought in to mediate with his great editor, Thelma Schoonmaker, who was married to Michael Powell, and so what we've ended up with is a sort of two and a half hour compromise cut of a film which at one stage was about five hours long and when I first saw the trailer for this having read about the production history I really didn't like it because it brought back to me all those memories yeah. about the production scandals of Heaven's Gate and just how much of an egomaniac Michael Cimino was on that film just you know shooting there's a famous story about Heaven's Gate where they were shooting a, a scene in the sun and the sun went in but rather than shoot something else Cimino waited in the sun for a whole day uh, just waiting for the sun to come out again yeah. and when it got to four o'clock the first assistant director came up and said no what about lunch he said lunch this is bigger than lunch Wonderful. Yeah, well, it, you'd think, but it's not. So, having let it settle, I do think it's a bad film, but not necessarily an awful one. For the simple reason that it takes a very long time to say at quite active very little, because it's essentially a very easy moral dilemma of, should I come clean and let my life be ruined, or shall I... No, sort of keep it underneath and hope yeah. that people around me will cope okay. And no, it's handled very melodramatically because there's lots of sort of scenes, particularly in the trailer, of sort of moaning and wailing and crying and just in that way. There's sort of all intertwining plot threads that don't quite fit, like the very misjudged romance between Anna Paquin and her teacher, played by Matt Damon. And it, you know, bear in mind this is from the guy who wrote Gangs of New York, which if in its longer version feels like it goes on for days and days and days. It, it's it, You could call it Kenneth Lonergan's Heaven's Gate. I'm not going to be quite that harsh because clearly there was a lot of attention to detail went into it, but it's a total blamongy mess. Right, just looking at seven films Matt Damon's had this year. He's been a busy boy. He has been prolific. Yes, prolific. Yes. That's the right word, yes. Happy Feet 2 is next. Okay, um, new film by George Miller, who, uh, if you may remember, directed the Mad Max trilogy. Which yeah. We, uh, and uh, then went on to produce Babe, which I know isn't your favourite film. He directed Babe, Pig in the City, and then created the first Happy Feet. This project is apparently the reason why uh, the fourth Mad Max film called Fury Road was delayed. That was going to star Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron, but that's been put on the back burner because of this. In the first film, you had penguins learning how to sing and tap dance. In this, you have a young penguin who has his first dancing lesson and makes a mess of it. He seeks guidance from a puffin, whom he thinks is a penguin that can fly. And uh, while that's all going on, you have musical numbers where the, ping where the penguins sing, dance, tap dance, and rap. So, yeah. Um, 
clearly we're not the target audience, no. but I do think that this is rather symptomatic of what has happened with mainstream children's entertainment. I mean, the story is all over the place, because you have sort of three or four different stories yeah. going on at once, and the 3D adds pretty much nothing. The celebrity voices, because you've got Matt Damon and Brad Pitt playing Krill, sort of muttering about sort of the, the loneliness of existence and how similar everything is, and that, that's, it's laboured, it doesn't entirely fail, but it's laboured. So all you have left is the visual splendour. And to be fair, it does look pretty good in the sense yeah. of the, the abandoned Norwegian uh, base in the Arctic, where it emerges they have found an alien craft buried in the ice. The alien is a microscopic organism that can imitate any life form. It starts imitating the crew, and then the question is, who's the thing and who isn't? In this film, you have the movements of the Norwegian crew who found the thing in the first place, but with exactly the same plot and exactly the same set pieces and pretty much the exact same ending. The only difference is that instead of Kurt Russell, you have Mary Elizabeth Winstead in the lead role, yeah. who was, uh, if you were listening last week, was uh, the female lead in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Indeed. Only yes. this time she doesn't have multicoloured hair, which is a disappointment. Um, <laughs> um, in, in case you haven't gathered, I'm a... No, as we talked about the thing. I'm a huge fan of the original, firstly because of its boundary-pushing special effects, where you had this extraordinary sort of shape-shifting transformations, which, like I say, look back to the paintings of Edvard Munch. But the other, perhaps more important thing about the the John Carpenter, I almost said the original, but the John Carpenter version of the thing, is that it had substance going. It was an incredibly tense film about paranoia, about racism, about the Cold War, and it sort of you felt like you might be getting infected with the thing yeah. as you were watching it. This is like someone has taken the Carpenter version, taken all the substance out of it, and then redone all the special effects with CGI. So it's serviceable, but it's completely pointless. Right. Next film is Romantics Anonymous. When I first read the uh, trailer for this, or the description sounded a little bit like Chocolat, but... Uh... Yes. And, uh, no, that's Which is a great film. Yeah, I really like Chocolat. I mean, it's you know, one of Lasse Hallström's best. So it's the new film by Jean-Pierre Améris, starring uh, Benoit Polvort, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, who was in A Town Called Panic, and that very odd film Man Bites Dog, which was sort of the French equivalent of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, yeah. and Isabel Carré, who was in The Hideaway recently with Audrey Tattoo. So the story is that uh, it's you know, a man and a woman, she is a gifted chocolatier, or chocolatier, however you pronounce it, who is too shy to acknowledge her talents. He's the owner of a chocolate factory who is very bashful and very self-conscious, and as a result they're not selling any chocolate. She is brought in to design new chocolates to boost sales. Both of them are hopeless romantic hence Romantics Anonymous, and they end up trying to fall in love with each other while sort of not embarrassing themselves. There are comparisons with Chocolat, not just because of the presence of chocolate, but because it's a, about a woman coming into a yeah, community which indeed. sort of doesn't have the confidence to be sort of romantically and sexually open with women. And, I mean, it doesn't involve sort of Johnny Depp coming along as a gypsy, which is unfortunate. <laughs> um, it's not as good as Amelie, which is really great, but there is sort of, there is, it's a frothy confection in the same way that Chocolat is, and it's 18 minutes long, and... It's charming and light-headed. It's not anything that's massively memorable. If you saw it on Sunday night television, you'd think it was perfectly fine. So perhaps no reason to dash out, but if you, if you find yourself with nothing else to watch, it will do its job. And then our final one this week. Two titles. Shall we try the non-English title <laughs> first? Habibu Hab... Oh, no. We have a pope. Habeas Papa, or, uh, <laughs> which is uh, loosely translated as We Have a Pope. New film by Nanni Moretti. Uh, story is that a new pope is elected by the Vatican in their conclave, and uh, they go outside onto the balcony and say, we have a new pope, at which point the guy who's been elected as a new pope has a panic attack and says, I don't want to be pope. I can't be the pope. I can't head the Catholic Church. And he goes into a sort of, has a nervous breakdown. Yeah. They bring in a psychoanalyst to convince him that he can be pope, and then it's about their relationship. So 
it's about the sort of the clash between psychoanalysis and religion because when they first bring the psychoanalyst in they said no you can't no i know you're the most acclaimed psychoanalyst in the world but the thing is this is the pope you can't talk to him about his past sexual experiences because they're not relevant <laughs> and, and the guy goes okay well what can i talk to him about then i mean that's the whole point of psychoanalysis <laughs> so there is no it's, it's it is essentially it looks on the surface like a very sort of staid, down-the-middle yeah. drama, but it's actually quite a nice, frothy little comedy, and there are wonderful little moments about so It's not a, cl a clash between religion and psychoanalysis. It's a, it's a sort of personality clash, and I do like it. So I don't know how wide a release it's getting, and there are sort of plot holes and contrivances that you could drive a bus through. I don't know how close a relationship with these guys have. Yes. And a lot of it does, I suppose, tread in the same waters of the King's Speech, because it's about a commoner coming to yeah, deal with a does, pope rather than yes. the King. Yeah. But no, if if you find yourself in it, it's quite entertaining and you you will find yourself chuckling a bit. Right. In a good way. Not yes. it's not chuckling derisedly. Yes, hasn't been overloved by the critics, has it? No, I mean that might be an indication of just you know, the mainstream position of religion. It might be you no know, because the Catholic Church isn't all that popular at the moment. But uh, I think it, you know, it's once you understand that it's a comedy, it works. Right, so recommendations this week. Um, Hugo is the film of the week, and uh, otherwise I would say either Romantics Anonymous or We Have a Pope. Probably Romantics Anonymous because of its resemblance to chocolate. Great. Now, in two weeks' time, Saturday, December the 17th, we're going to be looking back at the films of the year, aren't we? Yes, we are. We will have a two-hour special. Yes, so we'd be interested in everyone else's views, so if you do want to text in or email in with your thoughts as to the best films of the year, we'd love to see them. Yeah, absolutely. We, sure we can we... either agree with them or throw rotten tomatoes at you. <laughs> <laughs> Not literally, because, yeah, maybe if you sort of send in a best and worst of the year so yes. that we can compare and then... Yes, uh, and there have been a few turkeys this year. There have been, but we yes. won't talk about them until two weeks' time. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Okay, well, we're back uh, next Saturday between 10 and 11. Yes. And you're back before then. Yes, we, uh, I'll be back on the Thursday and uh, from 1 till 3, and then Saturday when we would do Event Horizon, a ship that goes to hell. So, have a great uh, weekend, everybody. Of course, Jerry G here, 12 till 5, but now the news from London. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.